Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Joe Zhao. He's a professor of regenerative medicine at Cornell University, and he's working on uh, reprogramming gastric tissue, which sounds very interesting. So, Joe, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Richard, for the invitation. Uh, really glad to be here talking with you on uh, my research. Yeah, so in your own words, what are you, what are you working on? Okay, so the broad interest on my lab is regeneration, tissue and organ regeneration. Um, as you know, many tissues and organs or parts of our body are damaged in disease and um, injuries. So, uh, you know, um, brain, for example, um, the heart, uh, all parts of the body can be damaged. Some tissues can actually regenerate. We are, our body has a pretty a robust ability to recreate and regenerate some parts of the body and, and tissues. For example, well-known well examples include the skin and the blood. Uh, you could lose quite a bit of blood or you know, a big chunk of the skin, they can regrow and regenerate. But many organs, very, very important organs, they don't have very robust ability to regenerate, like the heart, the brain, and also the, you know, the organ that we study a lot, the pancreas, that has the insulin secreting beta cells. Uh, They're very important for diabetes and they can regenerate very well. So we're trying to figure out ways to regenerate these critical organs to recover the function and repair the body. Do you study um, type one diabetes because supposedly the body is attacking the beta cells. It might be an autoimmune thing. So perhaps if you learn, you know, when and why the body attacks, you maybe can do the opposite and, uh, have it leave them alone if you're able to regenerate them as well. Yes, yes, Richard. So diabetes has really two types of diabetes for people that are not familiar. Most of you know, diabetes that we encounter on the, you know, the society, the larger population are called type two diabetes. And, and that is basically uh, to a large part now we understood are induced by uh, environmental factors, for example, uh, you know, stress and uh, eating too much and all that. And uh, over time, or pancreas, beta cells, and idiots uh, slowly lose their function. So that's type 2 diabetes. That, in, that includes the vast majority of people uh, that have diabetes as we know it. But there's about 5 to 10% of the people with diabetes uh, suffering from the so-called type 1 diabetes. As you said, this autoimmune attack that is a large part of that is driven by genetics, although there's also big environmental influence that's very interesting. We can talk maybe some other day. Beta cells that secrete insulin. The only cell type in the body that can secrete, make and secrete insulin is beta cells. That's in the pancreas. And in this disease, type 1 diabetes, these beta cells are specifically targeted for unknown reasons. And majority destroyed, and therefore you suffer severe um, diabetes. Your blood sugar levels are very low. You have to use insulin to control 
um, these uh, blood uh, sugar level up. But however, um, insulin use over a long time of periods often lead to complications. Some of these are really life-threatening. And partly because when you use insulin, even insulin pump, the amount of insulin that you inject into your body does not mimic the blood sugar level up and down. So it's the fine tuning part that's missing. Whereas the beta cells in your pancreas through millions of years evolution has developed into a very fine tuned machine to secrete insulin and counter blood sugar level rise in a very fine manner. Therefore, it's the best way to cure type 1 diabetes. Many people have re realized uh, now that it is to give the patients back their own beta cells to cure this disease. Of course, yeah. we have to control autoimmunity. That's the other side of the coin that we have to figure out. Well, I have a quick question here. So when uh, a patient can be observed when they're in the middle of this autoimmune response and they're attacking their own beta cells, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're causing the beta cells to, you know, commit suicide and kill themselves? Or they're literally like, uh, as in phagocytosis and white blood cells are engulfing and eating them? Like, how do they die? How do they get attacked? Yeah, good question. So for humans, it's a bit complicated because um, the only way we can observe what you described, uh, the process is exactly how the beta cells die in this disease. You have to capture that. And right now, only the only way to observe that is to, to look at some of the autopsy samples that some of the type 1 diabetes patients died, unfortunately, tragically, often in accidents, then we can recover the pancreas and be able to look at that. And so those are rare samples. Um, um, and the conclusion from observation from these is that we believe the T cells, one of the major type of immune cells in the body actually uh, went over to the pancreas and directly contacted the beta cells. And then they released certain cytotoxic molecules and other things and directly killed the beta cells. That's the current uh, hypothesis, uh, I would say. Uh, although I was, uh, some people believe because these um, conclusion, you would say, some will call that hypothesis largely based on some observational evidence, and therefore is not entirely conclusive. So the beta cell death, exactly what happened, uh, whether there are multi multiple ways to kill beta cells and make them sick or die even on their own um, is not in conclusively known at this point, Richard. And when you observe an area of beta cells that have died, do they just turn into you know, a fibrous material or are they cleared away and they literally are gone from the site? Yeah, so they're gone and there are no bodies left. Um, there, uh, the pancreas don't really become fibrotic, although I think some fibrosis, the fibrosis is not obvious in this disease. Um, so you often, what do you see in advanced type one diabetes patients, you basically stay for insulin. You can find the eyelids. The eyelids also have other hormone secreting cells that secrete, you know, other types of hormones. You can find these cells, but you don't find the beta cells. They go. Uh, mostly gone, um, but there are no fibrosis. There are other abnormalities. Um, the bodies, the beta cell dead bodies, if you will, we believe are basically, um, uh, as you said, uh, probably eaten up 
by some of the professional cleaners, phagocytes, macrophages. These are type of cells that come around look for basically dying and dead cells and clean up the clean up the bodies. Uh, cell uh, debris. Uh, I think uh, I think there's good evidence in, in animal models at least that that these these being cleaned up by this professional scavengers. So what are you working on now? You're working on um, replenishing the beta cells, how? Yeah, exactly. So now that for the last 10, 15 years, uh, you know, people begin to think beyond just insulin therapy to treat type 1 diabetes patients. By the way, if we can make abundant numbers of beta cells, or sometimes people call that beta-like cells because they are not exactly like the beta cells in our body, but they can do the beta cell function. Um, if you can do that, not only we can help the type 1 diabetes patients, we could potentially also help quite a large number of type 2 diabetes patients because in the advanced type 2 diabetes, the beta cells are also done because you work them too much and they had too much damage, so their numbers drop. So you could also potentially apply this cell therapy, if you will, transplantation therapy to treat type 1 diabetes and advanced type 2 diabetes. So get back to the point. So about 10, 15, and even longer, I would say perhaps we should go back to history 20, 25 years ago. People start thinking maybe we can, you know, cure type 1 diabetes using our beta cells. So the first therapeutic that's developed beyond insulin is ID transplantation. And this is basically based on the idea that we can collect cadaveric pancreas from donors and then isolate the eyelids that contain beta cells and then transplant to a type 1 type type 1 diabetes patient and then um, basically give the patient you know immune suppression because the eyelids came from someone else. And also there's ongoing autoimmunity, um, autoimmune attack, you want to suppress that, and then we can cure the patients. That has been practiced at a smaller scale for 20 years, and that's called ID transplantation. That has been shown that it can control blood sugar levels successfully very well for even for years, five years, 10 years, some successful examples. So that is really a you know, proof of concept, proof of principle that this can be done. It can be done successfully. However, as you know, the organ donors are always in shortage. There's just simply not enough starting material to harvest eyelids and to do this transplantation. So now where do we get more eyelids? If you can get more beta cells, more eyelids, we can do that and treat and benefit a lot of people. So there are a number of strategies that um, people have been working on. For example, one strategy many labs have been working on is to take embryonic stem cells, the most primitive stem cell type in the eukaryotic culture, and they can turn into any kind of organs and tissues. You culture them and you induce them to differentiate into beta-like cells. Right, that's one strategy. Simple, just recapitulate embryonic development and get your organ, get your cells. And we have been working on the different strategy. And the reason is because embryonic stem cell differentiation is really a very, very long process. It involves many, many steps. Think about how a fertilized egg that turns into a human body it takes a very long time, very complicated process. 
people are making progress, no doubt about it, but there are downsides to that. And we develop a different way to do this using the so-called reprogramming. In essence, we basically take a, some adult tissue in the body and we treat them with the genetic factors and chemical compounds so that they can change their identity. It's almost like a change of apple in orange. And so that they can become the insulin secreting beta cells or beta-like cells. Are you taking gastric tissue and inducing pluripotency in these to make them stem cell-like? So our strategy does not involve pushing the cells back into pluripotent stem cell state. We actually go directly from gastric cells into beta-like cells without going back to pluripotent stage. So it doesn't involve a pluripotent stem cell in there. So this strategy not only is more direct, it also avoids a potential pitfall of using pluripotent stem cells. That is, you could have a teratoma formation if you're going back that far into a pluripotent stage. Why are these cells able to do a different job without, uh, you know, being pushed backwards in time and, you know, de-differentiated. Right. So that's an excellent question. That really goes back to, you know, 30 years of developmental biology in my previous life, you will, if you will, as developmental biologist. We have learned by studying how beta cells and pancreas created during embryogenesis, step by step, that there are certain genes that are extremely powerful to di- dictate the identity of a cell or of a beta cell. So we call these genes master regulators. And this has been studied by not not just only by my lab, but mostly these knowledge bases developed for many, many, many years by many labs that we know there's a handful, maybe, uh, maybe there's a dozen of these factors that involve in beta cell development, how to create the beta cells during embryogenesis. So, I think my lab's contribution is we discover that we, if we take a select set of these master regulator beta cells and put in a different tissue, we can directly reprogram and convert them from one tissue to another tissue. And we have a screen, not every tissue in your body can be turned into a beta cell. And we have done that experiment using mouse models and the so-called human organoids. And different types of basic human tissues and tissue culture dish that culture, that we found that the gastric tissues are particularly amenable to be converted into beta-like cell and secrete insulin and functional. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You asked the question, why gastric tissue? Why not other tissues? It turns out that the gastric tissue in the pancreas during, embryo, during embryonic development is related to each other. And they are next door neighbors during embryogenesis. And so they actually share a lot of similarities, genetically, epigenetically, transcriptionally. It's surprising, mm-hmm. but that's what happened. So think of them as cousins and nieces. They are not very distantly related. They are closely related. At one time, one, at one time in development, they are right next to each other and they're quite similar. I think that's why they are predisposed because of this similarity to, to jump from one, from one to the other if you give them the right kind of push. 
Really? So during embryogenesis, because they were very close to each other physically, they tend to resemble each other? That's right. That's often the case. For example, during embryogenesis, your entire, many of the organs in your body, the gut organs, actually line up on a tube. They call that primitive gut tube. You know, the organs hasn't formed, but there's domains on there laid out to the future organs will be developed one after the other line up in there. And the stomach and the pancreas is right next to each other. When you say they're similar, does that mean the they express similar proteins on their cell membranes. You know, their MHCs are similar. Like, what what is similar about them in particular? The similarity is a little bit deeper than just one gene. Uh, for example, you know, small number of proteins. Uh, the deeper similarity, I think we had to look at the genome, right? The genes are entire chromosome, the genome, gen- genome-wide analysis. For example, we can look at which part of the genomes are open, which parts are closed, there are techniques to study that, and we have done some of these. And we can appreciate that if you look at the genome-wide open and closed chromatin, the open chromatin will be the ones that open for business. So we have transcription, genes, express proteins are made. And if you look at broad comparison between gastric tissues and pancreatic tissues, you will appreciate that they actually have a lot of similarities. Some of the places that they're open are commonly shared. Some places closed, they also commonly share. So I'm talking more about a very big genome-wide similarity and that their chromosomes are open for business in the gastric tissue to be able to receive <laughs> that kind of right push, right? Because if you take a skin tissue and if you put the same set of factors that we put into the gastric tissue to push them into beta cells, they do not respond. Skin do not respond and heart muscle do not respond. Uh, cells in their eyeballs cannot be turned into beta cells. The reason is because they don't share this broad genome-wide similarity. So the, you put them factors in, they can't get onto the chromosome, they can't stick to the right parts of the chromosome to activate transcription to give you the beta cell phenotype. Hmm. So when you put them together, you're putting them together, what, in culture? And then you're, you would put them into, like, like, are you using a mouse model to study this? Or what are you using? Or is it just in a dish right now? Yeah. So um, our study started in the mouse model. And in the mouse model, we have used the in vivo reprogramming approach. So you could, for example, using a, a, a gene therapeutic approach that you use um, these master regulators, also reprogramming factors, carry on a viral delivery vehicle, you can actually shoot them directly into a mouse in vivo. You can turn their cells, gastric cells, for example, and from uh, uh, to turn into beta cells, and you can really uh, suppress uh, hyperglycemia in, in diabetes mouse model. So it works, and we publish this. That's in the mouse. For human, um, we can't really de- deliver virus and factors into human easily. And you could, you know, there's gene therapies, but that's a higher hurdle to jump through. So what we have devised a strategy is a so-called ex vivo approach. So what we can do is go to a person and do a little bit biopsy. This is basically use endoscope to capture tiny bits of tissue, like a pinhead sized tissue from your stomach. And then we can culture these cells. And what is wonderful about stomach is it has a 
lots of stem cells in there. It's called gastric stem cells in human. And the basic power, the normally the generate all the stomach cells for you and constantly self-renewals and replenish your stomach mucosal lining. But in culture, the expanse from, you know, basically hundreds of cells that we capture to millions and billions of cells is a really beautiful system. And now in culture, we can turn these cells by giving them genetic factors and chemical treatment and the uh, convert them into insulin secreting beta cells. That's what we're working on. And then once we have this, uh, hopefully a cellular product, because we can transplant transplant back to the person to hopefully suppress their diabetes. Of course, we can't transplant at this point. And, you know, this these approach is still at the research stage. So we transplant them back into a mouse patient that have diabetes. And, you know, then we can um, see that how these gastric derived beta cells secrete insulin and suppress hyperglycemia in these mouse but, patients. So um, you're attempting to change these cells chemically, right? I had thought that you would take out some of the, um, you know, the gastric tissue and then put it, you know, in the area of some of, a, you know, a mouse's pancreas so that it literally, uh, the cell-to-cell -cell signaling locally and the local factors would transform the gastric tissue into beta cell tissue. So you're not doing it that way, you're doing it with, uh, with chemicals? Um, so the way to to basically convert the gastric tissues into uh, uh, you know pancreatic islets and beta cells, uh, you need more than just the environment. You actually need a pretty powerful push from uh, from inside. So what we do is we actually uh, directly transduce them with the so-called master regulators. These are genes. For example, the genes we use, they have different names. They're NGM3, they're MEFA, they're PDX1. These are all the names of the genes that we use. And they produce proteins and they get to the chromosome. So we have to give these cells these genes, not just the environment. Once you become a beta cell, surprisingly, beta cells can survive outside the pancreas. They don't have to be inside the pancreas. For example, when we do clinical ID transplantation, we're talking about cadaveric ID transplantation. We try, you know, the surgeons actually transplant them into the liver. And currently people are also evaluating whether we can transplant these edits and also gastric insulin positive cells, secreting cells under the skin that will be a really convenient place to put them. And surprisingly, they can survive under the skin. Um, you can transplant into the muscle, liver, and they can uh, sit there, survive, and receive, uh, monitor the glucose level and secrete insulin. So they're pretty happy outside the pancreas. So, okay. Um, so how will you, how do you accomplish the genetic change? Do you use like CRISPR-Cas9 to get in there or a viral vector? Like how do you get this, uh, this change? Yeah. At the moment we are using a viral vector to deliver these genes inside the gastric cells to effect the conversion. I think uh, we are working on other strategies um, to make this more therapeutic because uh, if you can, for example, if you can use a pure chemical cocktail to treat the cells transiently and if they can uh, this chemical alone can push the cells from gastric to to beta cells that will be beautiful 
um, and then we won't have to worry about this virus that's integrated in the genome, how they can, you know, do, the, do to the cells so long term. And we know that this can be done safely, a gene therapy, but um, a small molecule based chemical treatment uh, just in vitro uh, would be better. Another approach would be uh, transient expression. There are different ways to transfect them with mRNA proteins and basically make some of the proteins transiently in these cells. Um, if we can just transiently express genes and then make the cells to convert from gastric tissue to beta cells, and that will also be very nice. So there's another technology I think we're working on with the, you know, would love to have. Uh, we haven't been able to do that yet, but that's what we're working on. Well, at what point do you know, okay, now there are beta cells. Um, when do they start producing insulin? Do they only do that when you've transferred them and transplanted them into, like on a mouse, I could see, okay, maybe you want to transplant them into the pancreas at the right spot, but why not use the liver capsule or some other macroscopic organ and transplant them there and maybe they would still have the same function once they've been reprogrammed? Yeah, so the current way to evaluate these cells functionally is that once you have some cells for us, and we can do, you know, different ways to analyze the cells. Do they have insulin? Uh, yes, they do. Can they secrete insulin, especially the beta cell functions? They secrete more insulin when you have higher glucose, and they stop secreting once the glucose level drops. So we do this so-called glucose-stimulated insulin secretion assay. You can do that in vitro, that is in the culture dish, or you can do that when you transplant it, these cells into a mouse. Basically, you put the cells in the culture dish, for example, and you give them different levels of glucose in the culture medium, right? Lower level or a higher level or even very high level. And then they're going to secrete insulin. You can collect the medium from the tissue culture dish. You can measure how much insulin is in the medium, how much is secreted, basically, right? So you can now evaluate that whether it's a good beta cell functionally or not such a good beta cell. And good beta cells should really secrete certain amount of insulin. We know that they can really secrete maybe five to 10 times more if you put them in a high glucose medium. The same is true when you transplant them into the mouse. For example, if you transplant human beta cells into a mouse and then you challenge them, give them a more basically sugar water, a lot of sugar water, make them drink. Um, that's also down to basically to people, right? If you go in to test and they will give you sugar water and they will take some blood and measure how much insulin is in your blood. And the idea is if you have good beta cells and they're responding to this glucose challenge, they secrete more insulin and you can basically detect that in your blood. So that's how we evaluate them functionally. But where is the final home for them. You've evaluated them, they're working, let's say, where do you put them now into the mouse or the person? Do they have to go back into the pancreas in the right spot or can they be put somewhere else and still function properly? Right, right. So we actually, um, both in these mouse studies, animal studies, also in human clinical, uh, you don't put them into the back, into the pancreas. The reason is um, pancreas is uh, actually a pretty sensitive organ if you're trying to put anything in there um, because the uh, most of the 
pancreatic uh, cells uh, in there are the so-called acinar cells that secrete digestive enzymes. And pancreas is a hybrid organ. 95% of these are these acinar cells that make uh, digestive enzymes. And then within them are these pancreatic islets, right? This, why they call islets, they're little islands inside the, in the pancreas. So if you poke the pancreas, the problem is um, the acinar cells full of digestive enzymes, they can release them and cause inflammation. It's called pancreatitis. Um, so it's very painful and, and uh, in the worst case could be fatal. So you don't put things into the pancreas. You put your islets somewhere else in the body. Clinically, uh, for cataract islet transplantation, you put them into the liver. But liver is not a best place. People realize that liver is perhaps not the best place to do this because it's deep inside your body. You can't really see it. It's very hard to monitor what happened with the islets when you infuse them into the liver. So people would love to uh, transplant the islets under the skin, for example, because you can monitor them. You can um, easily monitor them. So right now, a lot of effort went into finding a more suitable ID transplantation site, ideally under the skin. Uh, people believe that maybe you can also transplant them into the muscle and they could also survive secret insulin there. Hmm. Okay. Where do you think the best place will be? I think, I think under the skin would be the best place. It's really easy to monitor and you know there's a sophisticated i think equipment now people have developed that could potentially scan them right under the skin and you monitor uh for example uh, there's certain danger um, um at least for an embryonic stem cell developed beta cell and if there's any possibility any type of sign of disease developing of these grafted cells you can easily take them out right if it's under your skin um, so that's that's advantage. Easy to monitor. If anything uh, could happen, you can remove the graft very easily. Hmm. Okay. So what stage are you at specifically? You've uh, you've gotten the gastric tissue to put out insulin. Maybe just not enough. Or like, how far along are you? Yeah. So we are working really hard on the human uh, system. So we are at a stage where we can make a ton of gastric stem cells. Uh, in culture from human, and we can also turn them in culture into very good insulin secreting cells and very good in large numbers. But we still need to figure out how to purify them and transplantation into testing in the in the mouse model is is something we are working very hard at this point because I think if you can cure some of the mouse patients. Uh, then the next step really would be we have to think seriously. Maybe we can do some large animal models and translate that into clinics. Um, there are still some issues we have to resolve because you know to go into clinics uh, you have to be absolutely safe and be absolutely uh, highly efficient and 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 these are very high bars to cross. So um, we're working on that. What else do you think you could reprogram the gastric tissue into? Anything else that I know. I know there's only so much you can do, but you know if you have enough help, maybe there's other uses for gastric tissue that are particularly uh, useful. Absolutely, Richard. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think another organ, next door organ uh, with gastric tissue, is actually the liver. 
and liver is uh, their liver failure, their, their diseases that really hit the liver hard and you have a liver failure is very, very difficult to treat. And liver transplants, life-saving, uh, you know, again, treatment, can we make more liver cells? And for a very long time, people have been working on how to regenerate liver. And um, I think gastric tissue could be potentially, we actually done a little bit work on that. I think there's, there's literature out there, plus our own work, it could be really promising. But, you know, scientific research sometimes uh, is constrained by how much manpower you have. So if I have manpower, uh, I would love to explore that and, and think about how we can potentially turn some of the gastric tissues, billions of gastric stem cells into liver uh, and, you know, um, treat liver failure. That would, you know, I would love to do that. To do that. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. So, Joe, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they find you? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I have a website up at Wild Cornell Medicine. If you type in my name or especially gastric beta, <laughs> they will find me on the internet very easily. We have a web page. I have an email out there, you know, uh, whoever's interested in, in, you know, talking to us about our research, translational potential, clinical use, uh, you know, I would love to talk with people. Okay. Well, very good. Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Richard, thank you. That's a really great opportunity. Just love to, you know, talk with you about these things. And thank you for these very, uh, you know, thoughtful questions that you have. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.